Okay, well, we're going to finish up Matthew today. Um, last time I taught was about four weeks ago, and we went Matthew 28, 1 through 10. And we talked about the chronology, the sequence of events that happened as Jesus rose from the grave. Uh, so let's do a quick review of that. I mean, I know it was four weeks ago, but hopefully you retained some of it. Uh, what do you remember from, from that teaching that stuck out in your mind? Who were the first ones to go to the tomb that morning? The women? Okay. And who was included? You said Mary? At least those three, Mary, Mary, and Salome. Probably think there might have been more as well. And uh, what did they? Uh, what happened when they got there? Right, right. And were they wondering about that on the way there? Yeah. And uh, now, did it when they when they got there? Um, did they see the angel outside the tomb or inside the tomb? No, they saw the angel inside the tomb. Right. It was the guards who saw the angel outside the tomb. Remember that? Yeah, so he was sitting on the stone outside the tomb. And we'll get to what how their response was this week. Um, who was the first person to see Jesus risen from the grave? Mary, Mary Magdalene. That's right. That's right. Who was the uh, who were the the second people to see him risen from the grave? Mm-hmm. You're getting close. Those are the, that was the third group. They went on to Emmaus, which was the third group. Who was the second group? Wasn't the women on the way back? Yep. Women on the way back, right? But in the second group, right? They would have got back there and then the people from Emmaus. Who was the, who was the next person who would have seen Jesus risen from the grave? Individual now. Remember when the guys came back from Emmaus and said, We saw him risen from the grave? And they said, Yes, this person saw him also. Peter. Peter. That's right. And so we were seeing these sequence of events happening here, and uh, all the time, a lot of the other disciples who were hearing these things were still having doubts. You know, at one point, when the ladies were telling me, it seemed like it was idle words to them. You know, so it tells you that they didn't understand, or at least they went in one ear at the other when Jesus talked to them about him being risen from the grave. We talked about that a few two teachings ago. Okay, and so then, and then Jesus appeared. Uh, in person to them, and who wasn't there? Which the, which the apostle wasn't there the first time? Thomas. Thomas, and then he appeared to him later on. So you put your hand on my side. Put your hands where the nail prints are, right? And he 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 believed, and he fell down and did what? He worshipped him, right? He worshipped him, which is sure proof that Christ is worthy to be worshipped, and that he is God in the flesh. Amen. Anything else from last time that you uh, remember that sticks out? And I'm not trying to try. Jog your memory here. I know it was a while ago. Anything else? Six stuff for you.
Well, actually, Mary Magdalene would be the one who would have fled, 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 and then the other one would have stayed back. And she would have ran back and told uh, Peter. And who was the other person who went to the tomb with Peter? Um, John. John, that's right. That's right. And who, who made it there first? John. <laughs> and who went in first? Yeah. You kind of see a little bit of the personality in that, I think. That's good. Okay, let's, let's start in verse 11 and read through verse 20. Now while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this, is, this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, to the mountain, which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age." And so we start out here in this in this passage with the soldier situation. We know from the beginning of chapter 28 uh, in verse 4, it says, The guards, when they saw the angel, shook for fear of him and became like dead men. Now, whether they fled right then or not, we don't really know. That doesn't tell us when they fled. Uh, but verse 11 says that some of them, some of, not all of them now, says some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. Uh, so some, we don't know what happened to the other part of them. This is just some of them coming now, not all of them coming. And we see um, that the, the the chief priest and the elders wanted to bribe them. Now, that tells you a lot about the situation. They didn't try to refute it in a right way, in a natural way. They couldn't come against this miracle in a right way or in a godly or ethical way. They had to come against it with sin, in a sinful way. And it tells you a lot about them. And what I, what I want to encourage you with, with this, with this situation here, is that no matter how good your message is, no matter how well it's presented, no matter how powerfully it's presented, I mean, the resurrection, that's about as powerful as you can get, there are still going to be people who will reject it to the point where they'll have to reject it by using sin. So if, if you go out and you're preaching the gospel and you, you're seeing not many people are getting converted, not many people are getting saved. I'm not saying we shouldn't pray for that and we shouldn't seek, you know, press into the Lord more to seek after him more for, for more converts and more disciples. I'm simply telling you that this is the most powerful thing that could ever happen. This one rose from the grave. It was shown powerfully that people who are not on his side now, the soldiers, people who are not on Jesus' side, not on the disciples' side, are coming back and telling this story. That's powerful. When your enemies will tell a powerful story, a miraculous story, they'll tell the truth about what happened. Now, that's powerful. Because what do, what do enemies, people on the other side, usually try to do? They don't tell the truth about you. Not if it makes them look bad. Right? Not if it makes them look bad. And so this, these, these soldiers are willing to tell the truth to the chief priests and elders about what actually happened. That's about as powerful as you can get. You know, if you look through history, sometimes it's hard to tell what the truth of history is. 
And usually if you want to know the truth in history, you have to go to a positive source concerning a certain person. One example we, I think we've mentioned many times is Pelagius. Okay? Most of history told about this guy named Pelagius, this layman preacher, who was not even a priest or an ordained elder or bishop. Most of history about him is, is given in a negative light because it comes from a source that is opposed to him. Now imagine if the source that was opposed to him would speak good things about him. Do you think it would be more powerful than someone who's on his side saying good things about him? It'd be more powerful. And that's, you know, historians, they look through history, they, they find a source that's against a certain person or a certain idea, and they speak of it positively, they know it's got to be true. They know it's got to be true. Um, one thing uh, Augustine did say about Pilate is that he, is, he was a very godly, a very holy man. He spoke well of him in that way. Now, he didn't speak well of him in his doctrine, but he spoke well of him in his character. Uh, a guy named, he was John Wesley's right-hand man. Um, his name was uh, Fletcher, yes, thank you, brother. Uh, Jonathan Fletcher. Uh, he, his opponents, his, the Calvinistic opponents he had, did not like his doctrine. They say all manner of things about his doctrine, but they said that he was like an angel of light, the way he lived his life. They say things like they didn't know anyone else lived holy as he lived. You know, and when your enemy, people who are against you, say those kind of things about you, you know it's true. And so these soldiers said these these powerful things that they saw an angel, they saw a tomb rolled away, they might have even been there for the ladies walking in, all the things that the angel said to the ladies, they might have heard those things, and now they're coming back to the chief priest and elders and telling them these things. Very powerful testimony. And yet they still rejected it. They still rejected it, to the point where they wanted to sin and bribe someone to put that truth aside. Okay? So when it comes to when it comes to truth, we need to be seeking after ourselves, be Bereans concerning these things, to make sure someone doesn't who's been bribed by whatever it is they're being bribed by to tell you something that they say is true, but it's not really the truth at all. Okay, and we see the, the, that these soldiers, um, you know, most times if people are going to lie about a situation, okay, they're going to lie about it to make themselves look better. But these soldiers were lying about something that made themselves look worse. It's all because they loved their money. They were given a large sum of money, which proves they loved, their, loved money more than they even loved their own character and their own reputation and what people would think of them. Because as a soldier, if you fell asleep during your watch, that's a horrible thing to do. I mean, when I was in basic training, if I would have fell asleep during my watch, I would have been in big, big trouble. You know, we had watches all throughout the night, 12 a.m. to 4 a.m., We'd have a whole watch, sitting there buffering, buffing the floors, making sure we were staying awake, nothing was happening. And they would test us from time to time to make sure we were staying awake. And if you fell asleep during that, in that time, you could be put to death for that. And so it tells, tells you how much they loved money, that they're willing to risk their own life. And they were trusting these men, these chief priests and these other. They were trusting them, who they knew were liars. They knew where they were sitting. Look at what they were trying to get them to do to cover up this powerful truth they knew about, they saw with their own eyes and testified about, they were trying to cut, and they were trusting their own lives in their hands, because they said, if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. They were trusting that they would do that. And they love money so much, they're willing to risk their own life for it. So you see all the, all the sin involved here, and covering up this most powerful truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
Let me see in verse 15. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Now, again, this is just some of them according to verse 11. It's possible some of them may have gotten saved. It's possible some of them may have saw that and said, Wow, I can't refute this. My eyes are not lying to me. I have to give in to this. That's possible. We don't know for sure, but that's possible. Okay? And verse 15 says, This saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. There's people who actually still try to use this very lie today in apologetics. They try to say that somehow either Jesus didn't die on the cross, it's something called the swoon theory, or they'll say that yeah, he did die, but the disciples took his body away to make it look like he rose from the grave. Uh, so these these kind of things are still used to this day. The devil, you know, he, he's using the same lie he used back then. He's using it today to try to refute the resurrection. Because he knows the, re- the resurrection is true. You know Jesus was God. Or you know at least that God approved of him. Otherwise, he wouldn't have risen from the grave. What other man can say they've risen themselves from the grave? Why the man can say that Christ God rose me from the grave? So you know he has no human being in their natural power can do such a thing. And if you're atheistic in your point of view, no human being in a naturalistic, materialistic world can raise himself from the grave. Impossible. But this idea that Jesus, um, his body was taken away, and his disciples wanted people to believe that he was risen from the grave, but he actually wasn't, Let's examine that for a second. Now, these disciples, we've talked about how they died in the past. We talked about Peter being crucified upside down. We talked about the, the horrible things Bartholomew went through as, as far as being uh, skinned alive, crucified upside down, and having his head cut off. Uh, we've talked about uh, Philip, who was uh, whipped and crucified and tied to a pillar and stoned uh, Thomas who was speared in the side, all these ways they died, and they died for these truths they were preaching. Now put yourself in their shoes. If you manufactured this resurrection, it was not legitimate, it was not real, and you knew it wasn't real, would you give your life for a lie? Would you spend all the rest of your life being stoned, being persecuted, being crucified, being whipped, being beat, you know, being tied to a, being nailed to a cross, having your head cut. Would you do all of that for something that you knew, that's something you thought was a lie, something you knew was a lie, and you manufactured this lie all by yourself? Surely at some point along the way, during the torture you had to, the persecution, the suffering you had to go through, you would confess and admit that you were lying just to escape that pain. Verse 16, then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now, as I was reading through this over the last couple of weeks, I was thinking about doing the chronology to see when this event happened, but the Lord didn't leave me to do that. I don't know exactly when that would fall in the chronology as far as what meeting it was with him. It was the second one or the third one or whatever it may be, or even the fourth one. <clears throat> we do know in John, when he met him by the sea, he says that was the third time he appeared to them. We don't know it was the last time. We do know it was the third time. <clears throat> and this is not the first time, because the first time he appeared to them where they were still in Jerusalem, with the doors closed. Okay, so this is in Galilee now. Um, so it could be somewhere between the first and the fourth time. It could be after the fourth time. We don't really know for sure. We do know that in the fourth, uh, the third encounter, that they were at the Sea of Galilee. That's where they were fishing. 
Um, but anyway, the Lord didn't lead me to, to, to figure that out. So um, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. So some, even at this point, whenever he encountered it, they're still doubting Jesus Christ being risen from the dead. Now, I don't think it was probably one of the 11 we're talking about here. And the 11 were there, but it was probably the other people who were with them, who were part of the 11, who were there as well. Um, and I, I would I would come to the conclusion at this point, because I think at this point he's already appeared to Thomas, okay? So I think the doubting is probably coming from maybe the periphery people who are with the disciples. Um, but once again, that's just my opinion on that. I, have, I haven't proven that from the text. But some still doubt, even though he's appeared to them in the flesh, even though he's shown himself to them, even though they have all these testimonies of Peter, of Mary, of Ma- the other woman who were with Mary at one point in time, of the two disciples on the way to Emmaus, they have all these testimonies, they're still doubting. Okay? And then verse 18, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And here's the, the therefore, since that is true, since all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, Jesus said, Go therefore. So this truth, that all authority has been given to Jesus, our response to that should be to go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now for verse 19 and 20, for the rest of the time this morning, I want to discuss this lie that's going around, it's becoming more and more prevalent in my mind, and I want to call it um, antinomian dispensationalism, okay? Let me explain those terms, okay? Antinomian, anti means against or opposite of, you're against something. Nomianism means a law. The Greek word for, for law is nomos, okay? So it's against the law, okay? So antinomians are those people who are against the law, they say it's not important, you don't have to keep it, you don't have to obey it. They're the same people who say we sin every day, it's not going to affect our salvation, we're once saved, always saved. So they're antinomians. So the antinomian dispensationalists, okay, are dispensationalism. And what is dispensationalism? Well, I mean, we all agree, I think we would all would agree, unless you're someone who believes you need to keep the laws in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, you're all dispensationalists to some degree, Okay. And all it means is that God has interacted with mankind in different ways throughout history. Okay? He interacted with the Jews in a different way than he interacted with his people who are from every tribe, tongue, and nation today. He interacted with the Jews as a government over them, as a theocracy. He interacts with us. Now we're under different governments all around the world, believers all around the world under different governments, and they're still serving Christ. They're still worshiping him and obeying him. Okay? So even though the government that each Christian is under is not a theocracy, it's not ruled by God in the sense that he is controlling and making their laws, they are still living in obedience to God, in obedience to the laws to the best of their ability without disobeying God. Okay? They're still doing this. So that's, that's dispensation. God interacting with people throughout history in different ways. Okay? And so I agree with that to some degree. But there's a group of people out there who, who you might call hyper-dispensationalists, or you might just call dispensationalists. They, they probably just think they're dispensationalists, okay? Where they'll say that the commands of Jesus, the words of Jesus, do not apply to Christians, okay? 
And the words of James, the apostle, you see it in James, the book of James, the words of Peter, and the words of John, the book of Hebrews, none of these apply to us as Christians. Okay? This is this group I'm trying, I'm, I'm going to talk about here in a little bit. And they believe in this thing called the gospel of grace. You know, I believe in the gospel of grace. I'm sure you do as well because we're saved by grace through faith. Grace teaches us to obey God, right? And so, but they term this gospel of grace that it was given only to the apostle Paul. And so the only writings, according to them, that we need to obey, that we need to read and take to heart and keep and keep, are the ones found in the apostle Paul's epistles. Because he was the apostle to the Gentiles. He says, we're not Jews. Everything written to Jewish people, that's just because Jesus didn't go to Gentiles. Maybe a little bit, but mostly to the Jews. J- James was writing to Jewish people. Peter was mostly writing to Jewish people. Hebrews was written to the Hebrew people. You know, John was mostly written to, to Jewish people. And so everything that those people wrote doesn't apply to us. That's what these people will say. And so when you tell them, John 5, 14, and John 11, God said, go and sin no more. Stop sinning. I said, well, that doesn't apply to me. You need to rightly divide the word of God. You see, they'll take that one verse in Timothy, you need to rightly divide the word of God, and they literally think it means dividing it up. This applies to you, it doesn't apply to me. Now, that is true to some degree. Remember, we believe in dispensationalism to some degree. We believe the Levitical laws and the laws of Deuteronomy, those things don't apply to us. The ceremonial laws, the governmental laws the clothing laws, the dietary laws, but we have good reason to believe those things from the New Testament. Okay, as we read Galatians, as we read Acts 15, and read how this situation was dealt with in the early church. But to go further than that, and to say that Jesus' teachings, out the window. Peter, out the window. James, out the window. Most of John, out the window. To say those things is to go too far. Okay, Because we don't have any good reason from the Bible to say those things. Okay. In fact, this one verse, in my opinion, refutes this this horrible doctrine. It says in verse 19, after Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So all the earth, all of heaven, all authority has been given to him. And the response to that is to go, therefore, and make disciples of how many nations? All the nations, not just the Jewish nation now, all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, and here's the key part here in verse 20. Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. So where, because Jesus has authority in heaven and earth, all authority has been given to him, the response was for us to go into all the world, go to all the nations, and teach them all things that Christ has commanded us. And how long should we do that for? And the verse 20, to the end of the age. Okay, now the dispensations will say the church age started. Some will say it started in Pentecost. Okay, that's the now we're in the church age. Started the day of Pentecost. Some would go even further and say it didn't start until the end of the book of Acts. Okay, um, but we're not really going to deal with that. We're mostly dealing with this idea that the things that Jesus said do not apply to us. And I think verses verses eighteen through twenty refute that idea. Can you see that? Can you see how Jesus commanded them to go to all nations and do it to the end of the age and to uh, to teach them all things that I have commanded? So John 5, 14, John 8, 11 apply, Matthew 7, the whole Sermon on the Mount applies. All these things apply because Jesus said so. Jesus said so. And beyond that, 
Who is the inspiration behind the Apostle Paul's writings? The Holy Spirit. And who is the Holy Spirit the Spirit of? And so are we dividing up Jesus and the Holy Spirit now? That what Jesus said is not under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is not important, but what the other people said under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is important? But let's let's just, let's, I want to take just a few minutes and I want to jump into their territory. You know, anytime you're going to deal with someone's position, it's good to step into their shoes and kind of blow it up from the inside out, I guess you could say. So we're going to take some of the Apostle Paul's writings this morning. We're going to step into their shoes and see if it even works with their hermeneutic of saying only the Apostle Paul's writings apply. So let's go to Romans first. And we're going to go through some of the Apostle Paul's teachings found in his epistle and see if he says the same thing Jesus said. Or if he had like a different message. You know, because if he had a different gospel than Jesus, then one of them's wrong. And and and, and uh, Paul said in Galatians chapter one, if someone comes to you with another gospel besides the one I have preached, let him be anathema. Now, if he says that, and him and Jesus are different gospels. What is he saying about Jesus? He's saying let his gospel be anathema, let it be accursed. Okay, so Romans chapter one and verse seven. Now remember, these people are saying, uh, and the reason, one, I think one of the reasons they're coming to this position because they don't want to live a holy life. That's really the bare bones of it. They don't want to live a holy life, or don't think they can live a holy life. At least those two things are really combined. And so we're going to go through the Apostle Paul's writings, and we're going to see if he talks about living a holy life. If he talks about not sinning. These verses that they want to dismiss and throw out. You know, they want to throw out James, I wonder why. Because faith without works is dead, right? They want to throw out Hebrews because it says, without holiness no man will see the Lord, right? They want to throw out Peter because it says, as obedient children, not conforming yourself to your former lusts in your ignorance, be holy for I am holy, right? Be obedient in all your conduct, he says in 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16. You know, Jude says a lot of the same things. You know, keep yourselves in the love of God, Jude says. So it's no wonder they want to throw these books out. But the act of Paul's giving a different message. He doesn't give a different message. Romans 1 and verse 7. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. Saints is the Greek word hagios, and it means holy ones. Set apart ones. Now, if Paul's gospel is different, and he doesn't find, and there's no holy people living, because we can't live holy, it's impossible to live holy, Paul doesn't expect us to live holy, who is he writing to in Rome? Who are these holy ones, these set-apart ones, who he's writing to? And Paul says these same things. If you want, this is a good uh, argument to use, this, this, this saint's argument here. You can almost memorize all the places found. It's found in Romans 1-7, so it's found in verse 7, the first, the seventh verse of Romans. But then in 1 Corinthians 1, it's found in the second verse of the whole book. And 2 Corinthians 1 is found in the first verse. And Ephesians is found in the first verse. And Philippians is found in the first verse. And Colossians is found in the second verse. This is found at the, at the beginning of almost all of his epistles have this thing written to the saints. Now, if there are no saints, according to this antinomian dispensational view, if there are no saints, who is the Apostle Paul writing to? Is he writing to a brick wall? Is he writing to animals? He's writing to people who can read, who are hagias, who are set apart, who are saints, who are holy ones. And so once again, you see this in Romans 1-7. You see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 2. 
2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 1, Ephesians 1 1, Philippians 1 1, and Colossians 1 2. You see this, this thing of saints. So if someone, if you tell someone as you're witnessing to them that you're a saint of God, so you're not a saint of God. Well, yes, I'm just like the people in the first century who the Apostle Paul wrote to. And it's found at the first verse of this book, the second verse of this book, the first book of this book, Paul is continually writing to these people. Okay? And if there are no such people as a Hagias person who is holy and set apart, then he's writing to nobody. Or he's a liar. Yeah, or he's a liar. And so from that alone, we can tell the Apostle Paul did not have a different message. He did not have a different gospel. Romans 2, starting in verse 1. He just got through talking about who will not inherit the kingdom of God. He goes through a list of people who are practicing certain sins, talks about homosexuality. And then in verse uh, 1 of chapter 2, it says, Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. From whatever you judge, another, you condemn yourself, for you, ju- you who judge practice the same things. Now, if we're always continually practicing the same things he lists in verses uh, 28 through 32 in chapter 1, then we're all condemned. We condemn ourselves always because we practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you escape the judgment of God? And now he's going to plead with them not to stop judging. Notice this. He's not going to plead with them to stop being judgers. He's going to plead with them to become right with God so they actually can judge properly. Verse 4. Um, or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But according to your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and a revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds. Eternal life. Now, now watch who's going to get eternal life here. Eternal life to those who, by patient continuance in doing good, seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish in every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greeks. So There's including both there. For there is no partiality with God. So there's no partiality with God between Jews and Greeks. He expects them to obey the same list of rules that's going to cost them their soul or not. You see that? By patient continuance and doing good. So if the Apostle Paul thinks that we can't live holy, it's impossible, we're always going to be disobeying God, he just condemned himself by what he just wrote. Romans chapter 6. And really, you can use all of Romans chapter 6. I'm going to look at a few verses here. But all of Romans 6 is really good to refute this this lie. Uh, Verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. This is really good, because people who believe this, they'll quote the second part of verse 14 and say, I'm not under law, I'm under grace. And they think that's a proof text to prove that they don't have to obey the law anymore. But it says, sin shall not have dominion over you. Why? Because you're not under law, but under grace. 
the very reason that you should not have sin having dominion or ruling over you or reigning in your your body or submitting your members as instances of unrighteousness is because you're under grace and not under the law. Okay, Romans chapter 8 in verse 1. Now, if you're going to use this verse, keep in mind the second half is not found in an NIV, the NASB, the ESV, etc. Only the first half is found in those Bibles. Uh, there is therefore now no condemnation to, the, to those who are in Christ Jesus. And they would stop there for those versions of the Bible. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So the condition there. If you're in Christ, there is no condemnation for you, as long as you're not walking according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Okay? Verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. So who are the sons of God? Those who are led by the Spirit of God. I've asked this question a few times before. Will the Spirit of God lead you into sin? That's right. So if you're being, if you're in sin, the Spirit of God didn't lead you, and therefore you're not being led by the Spirit of God, therefore you're not a son or daughter of God. Correct? Is that a good deduction to make from that verse? Amen. So we know that if, if these people who are antinomian dispensationalists, that they are not sons and daughters of God. We know that by the way they live their life. Because it says that as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Romans chapter 12, in verse 1. So you see, as I'm going through Romans, and I like to use Romans a lot too, I like to use Galatians a lot as well, uh, we're seeing that the Apostle Paul did not have a different gospel than Jesus. He did not have a different gospel than James or Peter or John or Jude. He had the same gospel. Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So he's using the mercy of God to beseech them, to encourage them, to exhort them, to present in their bodies a living sacrifice. And what kind of sacrifice is it? A holy one. An acceptable one to God. And it's, this is their reasonable service. It's not an unreasonable thing to ask someone who calls himself a Christian to live a holy life. It's a reasonable thing. It should be expected. And it says, do not be conformed to this world. Well, if you're sinning every day, you are conformed to this world. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So the only way you can know the perfect, good, and acceptable will of God is that you're offering yourself as a living sacrifice and your mind is being transformed. It's being renewed. So they're not even qualified, according to Romans 12, 1 and 2, to even teach doctrine. They're not even qualified to teach at all because they don't, they couldn't possibly know the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, if they don't know that, how can they tell it to others? So they're disqualified in that point alone. Go to 1 Corinthians. Chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Do you not know 
that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. I'm convinced those two sentences right there are written for people like these people. The God specifically have these things written down for people just like them who would be deceived that the unrighteous could inherit the kingdom of God. When Paul makes it very clear in his epistle to the Corinthian church, the first one he wrote, that they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Of course, it's not an exhaustive list, but the people who are promoting this teaching, they're engaged in some of these things. They could tell you some of the things that they were engaged in. And they have no shame about it because they think they're okay with God. They think they can inherit the kingdom of God while doing these things. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And we know from Paul's epistle to the Corinthian church, and then also, I believe, he wrote Hebrews too. Now, they wouldn't agree with that. They wouldn't agree that he wrote Hebrews. He doesn't say that in the book of Hebrews. It's the writing style, the language, very similar to Paul's epistles. But if they would concede that, they'd have to allow Hebrews in, wouldn't they? Yeah, so you can see how their bias allows them to choose who wrote Hebrews and who didn't without objectively looking at, well, what does, this, does it look like Paul wrote this or not? But he, Paul uses the same example in Hebrews 3 and 4 that he uses right here in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, uh, talking about the people in verses 1 through 4 who followed Moses, who went through the sea, who had the manna, who had the water. <clears throat> Verse 5 says, but with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as also they lusted. But they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as were some of them, as it is written. These people, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual morality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Can't get past that. So he, he goes through some of the things they did. They became idolaters. They committed sexual morality. Uh, they were testing or tempting Christ. They were complaining about things. These are all sins. And it's not, he's not limiting himself to just those three sins that we saw in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. He's saying if you do these things, you're going to fall. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And then 1 Corinthians 15. I think this is pretty powerful. It goes really right along with what Jesus said in John 5, 14 and John 5, 11. Or John 8, 11. In 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 33. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Boy, do I know that from my earlier days. Awake to righteousness and do not sin. Can't get any clearer than that. Do not sin, the Apostle Paul said. Just like Jesus said. Just like Peter said. Just like Jude said. Just like James said. Just like John said. They all say the same thing. Do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. Speak this to your shame. And then we have, uh, let's go to 2 Corinthians. Get a little bit from all his epistles to the churches here. 
2 Corinthians chapter 6. And we see in verses 11, let's just start in verse 11. Let's start in verse, let's start in verse 11 instead. O Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. Now return for the same, I speak as to children, you also be open. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? Or what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has a temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of living God. Now, if you are the temple of living God, and you have a bunch of sin inside of you, are you the, still the temple of living God? Is going to stay inside of you? Well, let's see what he says in 1 Corinthians 3. I just thought about this one. Verse 16 of 1 Corinthians 3. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. So if you defile the temple of God and you become unholy, you better watch out. God may destroy you. He may destroy you. Now, of course, he has mercy. He gives people time to repent. We all know that. But the point is that if you go back to sin, you're trying to put idols in the temple of God along with the Holy Spirit. But will the Ark of the Covenant, where the Holy Spirit dwelled, did it remain in the temple of God when they started to defile it with idols? No. Ichabod is what it means. The glory of God departed. Don't let Ichabod happen to you. These people who are saying these things, these antinomian dispensationalists, I don't know whether they were ever saved. But I can tell you this, at this point in time, the way they're living, if they're actually living according to the doctrine, they are Ichabod at this point in time. God is not dwelling inside of a temple that is unholy and is defiled and has a bunch of idols in it. He didn't do it in the Old Testament. He will not do it in the New Testament either. Uh, verse 17. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. What's the condition for him receiving you? Not touching what is unclean. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from some filthiness of the, oh, I'm sorry, from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Some filthiness, all filthiness of just the flesh, no, the flesh and the spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Paul's teachings, Paul's gospel is no different from the Gospel of Jesus, from the Gospel of John, from the Gospel of Peter, from the Gospel of Jude and James. Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 19. All of us know the fruit of the Spirit, but the works of the flesh are right before it. It says, now the works of the flesh, starting in verse 19 of Galatians 5, now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, which I tell you beforehand, just as they also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, if you think you're getting holy, if you... Uh, you know, we all believe in this doctrine of biblical perfection. 
But I think sometimes the temptation for people who believe in this is to kind of look at themselves more favorably than they ought to. To not really heavily examine themselves and in their hearts. They can go to 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10 and say, I'm not doing any of those things. But ask yourself, once you've passed the test in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, come here. This goes a little bit deeper here. Uh, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions. These things are a little deeper. They're going a little deeper into your heart, a little deeper into your motives and your tensions than they do in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. A little deeper here. And he does say in verse 21, and the like, which means he's saying, this is not an exhaustive list here. And anything that's like this, I told you beforehand, and times back, I'll tell you again, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, once again, we've talked about this before, but practice does not mean here, do it a lot. It means do it at all. You shouldn't be doing these things at all. Okay, Galatians 6, verses 7 and 8, or 7 through 9. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will also, of the flesh, reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. So if you sow to the Spirit, which means you're following the Spirit, you're obeying the Spirit, you're being led by the Spirit, then you will reap everlasting life. That's the condition to reap everlasting life. And we will reap a harvest if we do not grow weary. If we do not lose heart, we shall reap a harvest. And Galatians is one of the, the biggest books they like to use to prove their doctrines. And part of the problem is they become, uh, they misunderstand when when Paul says, you know, not by works of the law that we're saved, that he's referring to circumcision, referring to the ceremonial works of the law, not referring to obedience to the moral commands of God. Not referring to those things. And he makes that clear all throughout his epistles. Uh, Ephesians 5, <clears throat> verses 5 through 7. For this you know, that no, fornic no fornicator, unclean person, nor a covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. So if someone goes against what verse 5 says, what are their words like? They're empty words. They're trying to deceive you. If someone tries to tell you that a fornicator, an unclean person, a covetous man, or an idolater can inherit the kingdom of God, that they do have an inheritance in Christ's kingdom or in God's kingdom, they are trying to deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, fornication, uncleanness, covetousness, idolatry, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. If you're partakers with those people, you become a son or daughter of disobedience as well. And now the wrath of God is upon you. So we see that in Ephesians as well. Colossians chapter 1. <clears throat> Let's see if the Apostle Paul believed in perfection. Colossians chapter 1. And verse 27. To them God willed to make known where are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. Now this is part of their, their hermeneutic here. They say, well, this mystery that was given only to Paul because he was the Apostle Gentiles, 
was given to him. It's this gospel of grace, this gospel that you don't have to keep God's laws. You don't have to obey God. So let's see as, as Paul elaborates on this mystery that he was given to uh, make manifest among the Gentiles. He says, which is, here's the mystery, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end, presenting men perfect in Christ Jesus, to this end I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. Question, if Christ is in you and you are sinning, isn't Christ sinning with you? If Christ is in you and you are sinning, isn't he sinning with you then? Yeah, that's what it would have to be. In fact, Paul talked about this back in Galatians. In Galatians chapter um, 2, let's go back there for a second. He talks about this in verse 16. He says, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. So they try to use that verse and twist it, say we don't have to obey God's law. But look what verse 17 says. But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are also found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. Now what things did they destroy? Sin. Repentance. That's what it means here. They've repented of their sin. If they're going to build those things again, now they're becoming a transgressor again. And Christ will not be a minister of sin. Certainly not, it says in verse 17. For I, through the law, died to all that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. No longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. So once again, it's talking about the ceremonial law. His main theme he's referring to here is circumcision. But once again, go back to verse 17. If you, while you seek to be justified by Christ, you are found sinners. Is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. Certainly not. And going back to Colossians 1, once again, Paul labored, he strived for this end. To present every man perfect in Christ. Now, that is impossible. To present every man perfect in Christ. If man is still sinning, then Paul was laboring in vain. Because Christ in you, the hope of glory, is what he strove towards. Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 10. Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, a passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourself once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man which is with his deeds, and upon a new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Okay? And it goes on to say in verse 11, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, 
Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. So he's making no difference between the Jews and Gentiles. They all have the same things to obey concerning the moral laws of God. First Thessalonians, chapter 3. So we, we can... We can play this this game with these antinomian dispensationalists and go straight to the Apostle Paul's writings and somewhat blow them up from inside out, they're, they're what they believe. And, to sh- and the hope is not just to prove them wrong, of course. The hope is to show them the truth, that they might be snatched from the snares of the devil and come to knowledge of the truth and walk in holiness themselves before God. First Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love, to one another and to all, just as we do to you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Lots of good stuff there. Establish your hearts blameless. Nothing to be blamed for. Holiness before he returns. And that when he returns, he'll be with all his saints, all his hagias, all those who are who are living holy. All those who know him, all those who are set apart. Second Timothy two nineteen through twenty one. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. Let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. For in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, when anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Yes? Yeah. Yeah, that is good to use with Romans 9. It's talking about the potter and the clay. Yes, and, it's, and verse 21 obviously gives the uh, the accountability, the obligation, the responsibility of being cleansed to who? In verse 21. Who is obligated to be cleansed? Is it God forcing this cleansing upon you? Or does it say, therefore if anyone cleanses himself? You know, if I say, Malachi, go, go, go wash your hands. Is he expecting me to wash his hands for him? Or is he going to go to the sink, turn a faucet, get his hands a little wet, get some soap on there, scrub them for about 30 seconds to make sure I actually get clean, you know? And then rinse them off. He's going to do it. I'm expecting him to do it. God's expecting, of course, we need the blood of Jesus Christ to be cleansed. And God has brought the truth to our minds. Otherwise, we couldn't respond to it properly. So God is obviously involved in it. I brought the truth to Malachi's mind. Wash your hands. They're filthy. Right? And I provide the water for him. I provide the soap for him. He doesn't buy those things himself. I provide the sink for him. So I'm involved in those things. But he's still required to do the things... Using the things I provided to take care of what I've told them to do. The same way God expects you with the shed blood of Christ, with the drawing of the Holy Spirit, with the illumination of the Word of God, to submit to it and to be cleansed, as it says in verse 20, verse 21. So we see that in 2 Timothy. Let's go to uh, 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. This seems to describe this movement to some degree. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, 
traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power, and from such people turn away. Yeah, they deny its power. How you know to say you can be saved, to say you can have you know baptism, the death, burial, and then you just stay down there, right? No, you get resurrected and you walk in newness of life, Romans six says. So you're you're denying the power of the resurrection. You're saying, Yes, I'm gonna die with Christ, but I'm gonna raise back up and still live according to the old man. Live according to the works of the flesh like I always have. And such people, they have a form of godliness because they claim to be Christian. Maybe they have a Bible. Maybe they're trying to explain doctrine from the Bible. But they deny the power of the gospel, which to deliver you from your sin. And then we see in Titus 1.16, a very similar thing being said here. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient and disqualified for every good work. And of course, most of us already know Titus 2, 11 and 12, right? What the grace of God does, teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust and live soberly, righteously, and godly in heaven. Right? No, it says in the present age. In the present age. Not in heaven, in the present age. And the grace of God that brings salvation, the only kind of grace of God that brings salvation and has appeared to all men, teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust, live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. And if Paul is writing during the church age, and he is the apostle of grace, this mystery has been revealed to him, he's telling us that grace teaches these things, and they're not being taught these things by the grace they have to live holy right now, then do they have the grace of God that brings salvation? No, they have the grace of God that brings damnation. And so we see as we go through the apostle Paul's writings, that the Apostle Paul taught the very same things that we see taught by Jesus, that we see taught by John, that we see taught by Peter, that we see taught by James and Jude. The very same things are taught by the Apostle Paul. But like I said, going back to Matthew 28, what Jesus said here should be enough to refute what they've said. But if they're not convinced by that, Go to some of these scriptures from the Apostle Paul. Get three or four of them in your mind. Memorize them. Make sure you have them. A quick recall in your mind, the tip of your sword. So you can say, listen, what about this? The Apostle Paul said this. He said this. I think two good ones are Titus 2, 11 through 12. And then, of course, Romans six fourteen. They both mention the grace of God. And so you're going to define the grace of God from the Apostle Paul's perspective, not from their perspective. Because they don't define it properly. But listen, like I said before at the beginning of the teaching today, no matter how good a teacher you are, no matter how good an expositor you are, no matter how good you present the truth, no matter how powerful the truth is presented to somebody, they still may not believe it. These Some of those soldiers are willing to take a bribe and risk their own life in order not to believe it. The people who gave them the money were willing to cover it up with money to not believe it. Why not rather repent? Why not save your money? And rather repent and start following the truth. Why not rather not risk your life, tell the truth of what happened, and be saved yourself? Instead of take money. Because what shall a profit man if it gains the whole world and lose his own soul? No matter how large that sum of money was, it wasn't the whole world. And even then it wouldn't be worth their soul. But once again, all authority has been given to Jesus. And the response to him having all authority, to us, to believers, should be this. To go therefore 
and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to com- to observe all things that he has commanded us and do this until the end of the age or until you die. Okay. Now, of course, if someone's going to become a disciple, what must they be first? Yeah, they must get saved, right? They must become born again. You can't be a disciple unless you're born again. Uh, and the word for disciple here uh, means a pupil or a learner or a student. Okay? Not a student like I used to be in high school. I sit there and fall asleep on my desk. Okay? Not the kind of student I was in school where I didn't pay attention, didn't care, to try to get it through and, and pass. But a learner. A learner. Uh, in John 6, Jesus makes a distinction. In John 6. He makes a distinction between a, someone who hears and learns. It says in John chapter 6 and verse 44, it's one of those verses that the Calvinists try to use to prove their doctrine. It says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me, sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So you see a distinction there. God teaches everyone in some way. The grace of God appears to everyone in some way, as Titus 2.11 says. But it's only those who hear and learn who will come to the Father. So there must be a learning. But So before you can make disciples, they have to hear the gospel and be saved. But before that can happen, you, have, you can't make something out of someone that you're not yourself. So the question I have for you is, are you a learner? Are you hearing and learning? Or are you just hearing? Because you're being taught by God. Whether it's by your parents, by reading the word yourself, by listening in fellowship, or just by God using your conscience he's given you and the law of God written upon your heart. You are being taught by God in some way. But it's only those who hear and learn from the Father. I heard a lot of stuff in school. I don't remember most of it. I don't remember most of it. I sat through class after class, didn't do most of my work. I can't remember most of it. Now I'm a better I'm a better pupil now. I actually want to take. I don't want to just read just to read. I want to take it in. I want to soak it in, not just so I can adjust my own life and follow up, but so I can teach it to others. And no matter if you're an elder in a church or a deacon in a church or you're just a regular layman in a church, the same thing applies to you. What you do know, what you have learned, you are required not to keep it to yourself. You're required not to keep it to yourself. Now, the level you go with someone may be different with each, each circumstance. There may even be times where you'll disciple someone, and in a couple of years, they'll jump way above you. They'll go beyond what you could ever do with them. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. That's what he wants to do with them. Glory to his name. But what you do have, what you have learned, you need to share it with others. You know, if you're a Christian and you've been saved, the least you can do is share your testimony with somebody. Share how they can be saved. And share the things that God is teaching you, things that you do know. But I'll, I'll just address real quick verse 44, since, we, since I, I did go there. I don't want to leave you hanging on that. Uh, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now, this can thing, doesn't can apply ability? Yeah, a matter of can or can't. You know, if, 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 
And Emily tells me, I can't do this. I, you know, I can't hang upside down on this, Daddy. You know, she's trying to imply ability there. And so I, I help her and try to teach her how to do it so she can do it by herself. Um, but this is a pl- implying ability, and I would agree with that. No one can come to God unless the Father draws him. Okay? Here's the question. How does the Father draw people? What's that? By Christ. Yeah, Christ is lifted up. Yes, the truth. By, by the, verse 45. By teaching the truth to people. Now, the normal mode of someone hearing the truth is by a Christian preacher coming to them, giving them a gospel tract, giving them a Bible, proclaiming out loud the truth to them. But this, this kind of inability here is not a constitutional inability that I don't have free will. It's not what it's declaring here. It's declaring an, an ignorance factor here. The reason they can't come is because they don't have, they don't have the knowledge they need. If I say to Malachi, go build me a car. He can't, ability, do it because he doesn't know how to do it. But if someone taught him, would he have the ability then? So it's not a matter of constitution, but like he doesn't have the, the, the hands and the eyes and the ears and stuff like that to be able to put it together. It's an ignorance, lack of ability we're talking about here. And that's what you see talked about in verse 44. Verse 45 clarifies that. And they shall all be taught by God. So if all are taught by God, can all... Have the, can, do all have the ability to come? But in order for them to come, they must do what? They must learn in order to come. Because all they're doing is hearing. They're not learning. Yes, brother. Yeah. Go ahead, bro. Go ahead. I was just saying, we, we talked about the one time, like, sure, like the whole context. I've been talking to Calvinists about this chapter later, and they can't answer the context. They keep going back to that one verse. I want to poke out that verse. But like, notice over and over again, Jesus is trying to teach this crowd spiritual things, and they keep going, well, Food. Exactly. They're hearing, but they're not learning, right? Yeah. Right. Right. Yes, that's very good. And so we see that there. That the and of course, and Brother John brought this up. Uh, John twelve thirty two says, "And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself." And so, it's actually referring to there to his cross there. But I agree, as we lift up the message of the cross. That that, according to verse 45, is teaching people and we're attempting to draw people. Now, whether they're drawn or not, whether they submit to it or not, it's on them. Okay? But verse 44 is not implying some constitutional inability. You know, if, it, it, you know a constitutional inability would be me saying, Malachi, go fly. Go flap your wings and fly. He couldn't do that. But the kind of inability he's talking about here is the a car example I was given. Go build me a car. He can't because he doesn't know how to. But if he learned how to, he's learning. If he learned how to, maybe he would be able to do it. Like Noah. Yeah. Noah built an ark. That's right. Yeah, I would I would assume so, because he's never built one. He never built one before. It's like he just made it up himself. Yeah. Another thing to point out with that one verse is, because they want to hold on that one verse, Calvinists, they'll point out the word draw. They'll say, oh, that's like the word drag. Right. All these verses where, like, there's a couple of acts where Paul and Peter were dragged. Right. Or Peter and... Uh, yeah, I can't remember oh, who it was. What are you talking about? Yeah. Right. Very good point. Right. Yeah, they're trying to say that draw here means drag against your will. Yeah, but the problem with that is in John twelve thirty two, that's the same word being used there. 
So is he dragging all people to salvation now? Yeah. Right, right. So he's still so, but that word can mean drag, but it can also mean draw in another way, by by coercing, by by a you know gentle, not pushing or dragging by the hair like a caveman dragging his woman out of the cave with her, by her hair. And that doesn't necessarily mean that. It can mean well, uh, I I want the chickens to come over here, so I'm gonna put some some feed down, and they start to follow you, right? The chickens follow. You're not picking them up and making them come over there. You're coercing them by throwing some feed out there, and it makes them want to come. You know, the, the cats, you don't know where your cat is, let's shake some, some cat food, put it in a bowl, and they can hit the bowl, and they come running from out of nowhere, and they eat the food. You know, that's the kind of drawing we're talking about here, okay? I even know the same word can mean drag in that sense. Uh, but the context must determine it, and of course, sound hermeneutics, using the, the whole counsel of Scripture to define what he's saying here. Okay? So, as we as we teach people the truth, Hopefully they get saved. If they get saved, then they can be disciples. They can be learners. They can be pupils. They can be students of the scriptures. And this is exactly what happened in the early church in Acts chapter 2. This will be the last verse I'll read. Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. Right after 3,000 got saved on the day of Pentecost, uh, he says in verse says in verse 42, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. And so the early church continued in the apostles. Now, what is the apostles' doctrine? The very thing Jesus taught them. Where did they get their doctrine from? They got it from Jesus. And so the very things that he taught them, they, could, they obeyed what he said here, and they commanded them to obey everything that he commanded them to obey. Okay, so, and we're to do this to the end of the age. Okay, so our confidence when we go out to preach the gospel is that all authority has been given to the Father. Our confidence when we make disciples is that all authority has been given to Him. And we must make sure as we're attempting to make disciples that we're, that the type of disciples we're trying to make, we're attempting to make, are not people who just sit around and don't soak it in. Not people who just sit in class and fall asleep to the point where there's drool coming out of their mouth onto their arm. And that's what happened to me sometimes. Yeah, me too. You know, so, you know, that's not the kind of pupils we want. We want to cultivate people who have a desire for the Word of God, who dig into themselves, not just feeding, 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 but, you know, trying to provoke them to get into themselves and get the Word of God so they can multiply. Because guess what? If, if, if you're the only one in the group making disciples, it's just addition. One plus one plus one plus one plus one, plus one right? But if you get one disciple, and then they make a disciple... And then those two make disciples. And then those two make disciples. It's called multiplication instead of addition. And that's the way God has made it out to be. That's the way it's supposed to be. You know, so it's not about having a position. You know, some people in, in Christianity in America, they think, well, if I'm not, I don't have a paid position in the church, I'm not required to do much. I just come to the pew and sit down and take it all in. But God calls us all to make disciples of all the nations. And in order for you to teach them what Jesus commanded, you must know what Jesus said, right? Yes, you must be a pupil or a disciple yourself. Yes, Brother Sean. I just want to know something going back to Matthew. Uh, with the, the elders and the chief priests, or I think it was chief priests, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, that they not only knew and believed the soldiers, so they knew the scriptures, they believed the scriptures, they knew he had risen, and they still went against it. Just the full knowledge of saying they can have a belief without actually living according to the belief. Yeah. Like they had full knowledge of all they were doing. 
And and it was told to them by a source that was a against the, what was happening. It wasn't like the apostles came to them and told them these things. They just wouldn't have believed them. But it's people who they knew if they, I mean, why would you lie about something that would cost your life? They knew, these soldiers knew that would have cost them their life if they were lying about this. So they knew they were telling the truth. So they tried to cover it up. Yeah. Okay, so I'll end there. Um, does anyone have any questions, objections, or anything you want to add? Besides the story been Ed? Danny. I was going to say, uh, you know, where you pointed out here where it says, you know, we have to believe in the teachings of Jesus uh, specifically, there is a, um, a prophecy or a warning in the Old Testament uh, where Moses is saying there's going to be one that's coming in his likeness. And he had to take heed to his words. And he gives a warning that if you don't take heed to his words, you're, you're not going to have salvation or something like that. I can't remember exactly how it's worded, but it's in I think it's an 18. I think it's Deuteronomy 18. Yeah, it'd be required of him. That's what it says. It says, uh, it says in verse 15 of Deuteronomy 18, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. According to all you desired, the Lord of your God in Horeb, the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord has... Lord said to me, what they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren, and put my words in his mouth, and you shall speak to them all that I command him. It shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require to love him. And he talks about a false prophet after that. Right. Yeah, that's good. So that, that's talking right about these extreme dispensationalists that would take all of the words of Jesus and throw them out. Well, that's going to be required of them. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yep. I don't think this position is really learning scripture originally. Yeah, they yeah, they do. These Calvinists talk about holiness and talk about obedience a little bit, whether they do it or not. Um, and then, of course, you have uh, Matthew five nineteen. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so we know that what it's talking about there as far as the kingdom of heaven is being within the sphere of God's rule. They're going to be in hell. They're not going to be in God's kingdom, since that the Christians will be. But the, that right there is a pretty big warning, too, from Jesus. Yeah, he'll be least. Right, right, I'm sure they would. But but they would still have to admit that if they're actually going to be in the kingdom of heaven, like they think they're going to be, they'd be the least. Why wouldn't they want to be the greatest in this kingdom? Why wouldn't they want to obey the commandments and teach others to do the same thing? You know, so even if you don't agree with my interpretation, it still doesn't make it look good for them. So. You see the same thing in Matthew 7. Now, this is Jesus' words now, so you, you wouldn't be able to use this very much in 
you're speaking with them. But it says in uh, verse 22, about the things they did, all these things they did. And in verse 23, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice antinomianism. Right. Lawlessness. That's the word there. Right. So actually in the Greek it would be antinomianism there. Right. You who practice antinomianism. So he's going to tell them to depart from him. I don't know. I don't think I've ever dealt with one who's called themselves that. But everything that Antinobin stands for, they agree with it. Yeah, I mean, being against the law, they're against the law. Uh, no, I don't. I don't think they would say that actually. Right. They, they don't. They're against the law completely. And, and they don't. They don't make a distinction between the ceremonial law and the you know and the moral law. Well, I'm, I, I guess I guess they would. They, they view obedience like this. It's, it's kind of optional. I mean, they think you should, but you can't, and you don't, and it's not important. Yeah, so it's kind of optional. There was one teacher I had videos from a long time ago. I remember seeing his page. He literally did say, "It's not Nazi. Your flesh is the problem. Don't worry about obedience. Your flesh is the problem. You're going to flesh one day. Don't worry." Yeah. But if someone broke in their house and, and stole everything, they'd be against that. Oh yeah, they, they definitely be inconsistent that way, no doubt about it. Yeah, yeah. yeah, if someone broke into their house or stole something from them or hurt them, they they want the law to have justice right. on them. So whenever yeah. we stray from true doctrine, we become hypocrites. Yeah, we become illogical because God is logical and His doctrine flows from His logical mind. And so if we become illogical, it's just sure proof we're not with God. Yeah, you try to hold them yeah. consistently to it, then they they just totally they disengage because if you start saying, well, what about? Uh, someone who's currently a prostitute, can they still be a Christian at the same time as being a prostitute? Right. You start throwing these 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 things out to them, you say, "Oh no, surely not. They're not they're not really Christian if they do that. Or they're not a Christian if they if they're a serial killer. Or they're not a Christian if they if their name is you know, if they happen to be Hitler. Right. Uh, he, he, there's no way he was actually a Christian. You know, they, they'll actually say things like that. Their conscience engages. But they still have a disconnect between their conscience. No one can live that what they're saying. No that well, I, I've actually heard some of them say those things. That they'll say, they'll say yes. Oh, they'll say yes. Yes, they'll say yes to those things. Oh, yeah. There's actually a guy who, who I think Jesse was dealing with on Facebook recently. I can't remember the guy's name, but he was, you know, calling Jesse a heretic because he 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 believed repentance of sin is part of the gospel. And you know, Jesse would say, "Well, are you saying I'm in sin for saying repentance of sin is? And so do I have to repent of that? Are you telling me I need to repent of that sin?" Repentant of sin is is, is 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 required for salvation, and that it's costing me my salvation by saying you have to repent of sin. And of course, they believe you must repent of unbelief and turn to belief. And so, unbelief is a sin, of course. So you repent at least one sin to be saved. Why not repent of all sin? Why not repent of all sin while you're at it? Um, and so, but this this guy, I mean, I think just asking, you know, can can a rapist? And the guy, he wouldn't come out and say yes, a rapist can be saved. But he said yes, all people, no matter what the sin is, no, no difference, they can be saved, no matter what they're doing, no matter what they have done, as long as they believe in Christ and believe the gospel. That's it. You know, all sin ultimately is the result of unbelief mm-hmm. because you can't walk by faith and sin. It's unbelief in God's word, at least, because God tells you to not sin. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so you're not believing God. No. So if you're repenting of unbelief, you are. You need. You Right. If it's a true belief, too. I mean, obviously, said from James, true belief works follow it. 
And so a true belief, becoming born again, means you're, you're submitting to all the knowledge you know at that point in time. You know, if you know that fornication is wrong, you're going to submit that to God at that point in time. You're going to say, no, I'm not going to do that anymore. You know, whatever it may be. Well, you can bring up Revelation and what they said. Yeah, it's from John. There was Word. one guy I remember talking with a while Because they were talking to the church. I finally got him to listen to that. He went away for a while and came back, and he supposedly came out of dispensationalism, and then he got right back into something else. Mm-hmm. Kind of like a, uh, what do you call it, conspiracy theorist, Christian oh. type person. Like NWO. Like politics and Okay. I had one other thought when you mentioned about yeah. uh, them dividing up between uh, the writings of Paul and the others uh, taken like, supposedly just to the Jews. Right. But uh, Peter, First Peter, he says, "Be holy, mm-hmm. I am holy." And uh, he went to Cornelius. In, in the last chapter of First Peter, he says uh, that he testifies that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. Uh. So Good. in First Peter, where he's talking about holiness, at the end he says, I testify that this is the true grace of God. That means there's a false grace of God in which yeah. people are not standing. They're going to fall yeah. if they're in that false grace of God. And then in Second Peter, uh, what's interesting is that at the end of chapter 3, he talks about how all these things are going to come to an end. Um, he says, what manner of people ought we to be in right. holy conduct and godliness, right. in the coming of the Lord. Right. And, uh, and then he says... Um, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him blameless. in peace, without spot, without spot, and blameless, right. like blameless in holiness, just like Paul said, right. blameless in holiness, blameless, and consider that the long suffering of our Lord of salvation has also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. There you go. So you have Paul in agreement on holiness and the true grace of God. Yep. You know, so that kind of, I thought, blows that out of the water too. Yeah, and, and at the at the beginning of I think Galatians two, Paul recounts how he went to Jerusalem to make sure he had not run in vain, not not to necessarily get approval of his gospel, but what he was saying was that there were people who were coming behind on the Judaizers who were telling the people there something that was not true. Now he knew his gospel was true, but he was going to make sure that the other people were going to say the same thing. And when he got there, they agreed with him, and they agreed with his message. They were encouraged by what he was doing. If, if they didn't agree with it, surely they would have told him by that point in time. You know? Well, the things that, the things that uh, people will do to support living unholy lives. Yep. Twisting the scriptures to their own destruction. Mm-hmm. That's what it amounts to. And I'll tell you, I, I think that the best weapon <coughs> we can that we can use against this kind of hermeneutic and these people is to live according to your doctrine yourself. You know, you need to live holy yourself. And if you do that, and then you properly come against their arguments with the Word of God, then hopefully some of them will be saved out of it. Hopefully some of them will come to a knowledge of truth and start walking uh, in obedience to the one who they call Lord, who they call, who they call King. Yeah, I mean, it, it could be. I mean, generally, when you're doing word studies, you're trying to uh, prove that a word has been used a certain way throughout all of the scriptures. 
Now, I don't think they can prove it's been used that way throughout all the scriptures. They may prove they can be used that way in some of the scriptures. I mean, obviously, a sword has no will. You pull it out of a sheath. You know, if you're being, you know, if you don't want to go be, you know, taken by the police, you're obviously not doing it, you know, willfully or willingly. So there are obviously some scriptures where it uses it in that sense, and it can be defined that way. Uh, but when it comes to Greek word studies, if you can't prove uh, completely that it's used a certain way throughout all the scriptures, and it, it can be used a couple of different ways, and there's nothing wrong with that. We use that that way. Right. Yeah, I mean... Right, right. So there's different ways to use different words. There's no problem with that. The question becomes, should maybe of the translators have used a different word than draw? But, you know, the English language is pretty flexible. And so... Yeah, but being drawn does not necessitate that you would have to uh, be pulled in. Right. Uh, you can resist it. You can turn away from any kind of drawing. Exactly. It just, uh, it just means an influence in a direction. Yeah. Yeah. And the English language, I agree with that. It can mean that. I'm just wondering if the situations where, you know, it could be drag in that sense that they should have just used a different word instead of draw, so there wouldn't be any confusion. Well, there might not have been any confusion at all back then. Right. Obviously, for the translators, there's no confusion. Right. But there's obviously some confusion for those who are tr- who are trying to interpret it that way. People have gotten better at training these days. Yeah, that's, that's very true. Don't touch them.